Anxiety comes up when we perceive or feel a threat to something that we care about. So you might think the solution would be to remove all the threats. But that's not practical. It's impossible in a world we can't control and where things are inherently vulnerable. The only other option then is to change what we care about. The most anxiety prone thing we can care about or love is our own self-concern or our egocentric agenda. The most peaceful or least anxiety prone thing we can love is being useful. Organizing our priorities, beliefs, and actions so that being useful is what drives us overall is the only long-term solution to the concerns about the future, present, and past that plague us. So in that way, although the metaphysical backstory as to why it works is a bit weird, functionally changing what we love really is the practical way to deal with anxiety. So how do you change what you love? And what is the metaphysical backstory to why loving useful service is anxiety resistant? And what about all the other things I love that aren't these two things? First, you have to know how to recognize the fundamental categories of love, in theory and then in yourself. That equips us to begin the journey of spiritual growth that Swedenborg called regeneration, which is a gradual migration of our priorities from where we are to where we want to get to. Second, in brief, the metaphysical backstory has to do with the nature of self-concern-based anxiety versus the nature of the love of useful service. Anxiety often emerges from the false beliefs we have to adopt to support a self-centered view of life. Those false beliefs and self-centered loves are an access point for negative spirits, which is what really catalyzes the anxiety we feel. The love of useful service comes straight out of God and is the nature of God. And when we accept what comes from God, we enter the mental and emotional state that's called heaven. Heaven is, by its nature, the most anxiety-resistant state we can be in, since it repels hell and attracts the truth and consequent peace of seeing life as it really is, and God's role in protecting and guiding us through it. Told you it's a little out there. And third, what about all the things I love that aren't these two things? What about the people I love and my anxiety for them? What about the goals I want to accomplish and my anxiety for how that will turn out? What about my anxiety around important things like my health? Yes, there's lots of things that matter in life, but choosing to prioritize either love of self-image or love of usefulness actually changes the very nature of what it feels like to care about those other things. Making love of usefulness our primary motivation is the key to being able to engage with all these other things with less anxiety. For a seven-minute overview of the universal categories of love, see our video, The Universal Categories of Love. And for an in-depth breakdown of what regeneration is, check out Regeneration, How Radical Love is Born. And in our metaphysical explanation, it might not have gone unnoticed that we casually asserted that anxiety can be delivered to us via negative spirits. And if you want to hear more about that, we just published a show called Spirits Cause Anxiety. But what's really essential if we want to develop a practical tool to help deal with anxiety is that we've got to understand the nature of self-image-based anxiety versus the nature of the love of useful service. And we've got to know how making that crucial switch from loving our self-image to loving useful service changes the very nature of what it feels like to care about the rest of the stuff we care about in life. So let's look into those elements of the story right now.
The nature of self-image-based anxiety. Subheading in the vulnerability of falsity. And I want to start this episode with a disclaimer. This show does not replace medical advice. And you see that sometimes. But I really, we, I don't want it to replace medical advice. Because this is, we're talking about spiritual concepts that I've used to deal with my own anxiety and depression, but I never use them in isolation. It's always part of look to what the rest of treatment can offer for that stuff. However, there are places I find for myself where these spiritual concepts can augment all that and do some good in an area where nothing else can really do it. So that said, do everything positive, seek out everything good, but hopefully this gives you leverage to combat some things that nothing else can really touch. And we want to talk I want to talk about the nature of the conscious experience because it all just seems like a jumble, especially if you have anxiety and depression. It's just wave after wave of confusing negative things, and it seems to be good things and bad things all are messing with you. But as a universal law, Swedenborg says, if you pull back all those vines, underneath you can see that all unrest is from evil and falsity. So if we're trying to get into a state where unrest, in this case, anxiety is no longer messing with our life, we've got to start letting ourselves be moved by love towards spiritual things, because spiritual things are the antidote. And this is how he talks about it here, Secrets of Heaven. If you don't believe me, just listen to how cool this is. It's still appeal to authority, but still. The situation is that when the earthly self adopts spiritual qualities, so if we get right on the outer level, everything produced by evil cravings and false convictions, And so everything that disquiets us goes away. Oh, I thought what was disquieting me was the fact that I was a worthless person and my life had gone terribly wrong. No. False convictions, negative cravings. That's everything that disquiets us, goes away. Everything involved in a desire for what is good and true. And so everything that creates peace approaches. Oh, I thought peace was when I get revenge on this person and then... No. Everything that is good and true is what creates peace. All disquiet is the result of evil and falsity. There. While all peace is the result of goodness and truth. So moving back to this self-concern that we talked about in the beginning. Think about the life of chasing that. When you think, well, what's wrong? What's causing disquiet is that I'm not, uh, I don't have these qualities I want to have. Life isn't turning out this way or this person did this thing. Think of how fragile that life is. Think of how anti-peace that whole existence is. This is Divine Providence 250. What troubles the heart more? What is more often wounded? What is more intensely angered than self-love? This happens whenever it is not given the respect to which at heart it raises itself. Whenever things do not turn out the way it wills and wishes. And this is 100% accurate because if you, you know, let's say I, before I was doing this show, could be saying, I wish I had uh, a YouTube show that was mine. But now, you go and you get it and you get an audience and it's like, well, now I wish it was bigger. Or why did this person say this in the comments? Anything you get that's self-image driven, if that's what's pushing it forward, that will ultimately be vulnerable. It will become the new normal and then the same negativity, evil and falsity will come in and give you the same anxiety that you had before. Even if we are saying, oh, I I don't think that life is going how it should be, even that is not not in an evil sense, but it's self-directed in that we think I'm the only one looking out for me, that I am the one who can assess and is driving my life. But really, this is God's domain. Directing our life is something that God does. So anxiety is dependent on falsity. 
One form of falsity would be the idea that we are running our lives instead of God. That falsity can only be dispelled by truth, but to really get truth and have it stick, it's got to accompany and harmonize with the kinds of love that we have. So, if you love useful service, if you're making, instead of my ideal life is what I'm going for, if it's how can I have an impact where I care about the happiness of other people in whatever way I'm serving them, useful service is from the Lord. God is, in in a sense, useful service, and partnering with God to do good things is heaven. And being in heaven is what protects us from all that evil and falsity, which put together Swedenborg called hell. All right, the answer for me is simple. Uh, The thought is the form a love takes. So, self, love of self, which we all have, we identify ourselves with that love of self. I want the best seat. I want the biggest piece of pie. That's what we're born into, is that love of self. That love of self wants to form thoughts. Uh, I'll get to the party early. That way I know I can get a big piece of pie. And so you have the affection of love of self, seeking pleasure, avoiding pain, seeking pleasure of the pie. Then you have the thought, I better get there early. And then you have the behavior of actually getting up and going there. And then when someone's about to get the pie, you have an action, uh, oh, look over there, and you grab the pie. So, love of self forms into fear, you're not going to get what you want, or fear, you're going to lose what you have. And that's why, for me, inner self-talk is basically the hell of love of self and love of the world flowing in to your mind in the form of thoughts. Well, feelings, and then those feelings form thoughts and they want to form actions and speech, as in hell, so upon the earth, as in heaven, so upon the earth. They want to manifest on earth. So that's sort of the goal, I think, is to uh, become poor in spirit. I think that means poor in terms of thinking about yourself. You're starting to let go of that. That's not what I'm here for. And then that makes an open space for an influx for God to come in. That is what you're here for, is for him to flow in into you and through you to others with no thought of self, and I think that's happiness itself. So, when you're in the state of it, it's all about me, and someone tells you it isn't about you, well, what are people thinking about what I said in the speech? They aren't thinking about you at all. Well, yes, they are. <laughs> so, uh, to the ego, that's a big blow, because that is his love. That's his top love. So, Pharaoh does not want to be told he's not only not a god, he's not a king, and he's just a human being. You don't want to hear that. So, <laughs> So it's not, that's incapable of becoming loving God, loving the neighbor. So that's why that has to be, cease to do evil, the temptation. And that makes space for the new will to come in. And then you start to identify who you are with compassion, acceptance, love, you know, tolerance, and all the things we know are from heaven. The nature of the love of useful service. So last section we're talking about the vulnerability of falsity. This one is about the protection of truth. So if we're going to protect ourselves from evil and falsity, which is the the source of all the unrest that we have, everything negative that's going on in the consciousness is coming from evil and falsity, how do we protect ourselves? Well, you've got to use a shield. This is from Secrets of Heaven, 1788. The fact that a shield is protection from evil and falsity, which inspires trust, can be seen without explanation. Frequent use of the saying, Jehovah is a shield and buckler, has made it a familiar one. And yeah, is, Jeho- is Jehovah only present in military situations? Why are we talking about war so much? 
in the Bible was because the real conflict is inside each one of our hearts and minds, and that's where God is trying to reach in and protect us. The specific symbolism of a shield, though, can be seen from the Word. Okay, what is the shield? In relation to the Lord, it symbolizes protection. We got it, protection. In relationship to human, in relation to human beings, that's us, it symbolizes trust in His protection. Do you think about it? What is the shield? The shield is trusting that God is taking care of you. Because when your life, your mind comes at you and says, you messed this thing up, you're not good enough here, this bad thing is going to happen, it's hard to argue unless you say, no, God is taking care of me. God is arranging stuff. God is going to make it so this thing turns out okay. God has made me who I am. That's very hard for your anxiety to get a handhold in. Sounds great, right? Why don't we just all do it? But the problem is that if we are running this self-image at the forefront of our mind, if we have our egocentric agenda about how life should be and what we think that peace would be, that part of us never trusts God because God is not protecting our egocentric agenda. For example, if there is a talent show coming up and you say, God, I just want you to make me the best at the talent show because I love being the best at the talent show. Please have it so everyone else is not as good. First of all, what happens if two people are praying that? But also, that is not actually good for you. That joy you would get from like, wow, everyone clapped more for me than for Susie who played the piano. That is not peace. That is actually just reinforcing this negative, what some would say, evil tendency in us to be better than other people. That's not happiness. And it's not trusting that God is taking care of us. So if we, we have to get rid of that egocentric agenda in order for this trust, I trust that God is doing the, thing, the right things for me to take root because God is doing the right things for our humble, loving, spiritual self. And a key part of trusting someone if we're going to trust God, and that's going to be our shield, is trusting the advice or the directives that they give. Like, I, I'm, I trust you. Okay, do this. All right, I'll go do it. God asks, uh, so what's God asking us for? It's to love the good of the human race. Go have a positive impact on humanity. That's what all of spirituality is about, rather than caring about status. Lead with status second leave with a positive impact on humanity. Think about in the intro, we talked about being useful. This, this is the most anxiety-proof lifestyle. There's a particular unifying element that the happiest and most uh, peaceful people anywhere have. It's just a little place that's called heaven. I'm talking about the afterlife heaven. Swedenborg really went there and checked it out and said everyone in heaven is totally focused on useful service. This is from his book, Heaven and Hell. All the pleasures of heaven are united to forms of service and dwell within them. And because forms of service are the good effects of the love and thoughtfulness that angels are immersed in. Oh, there is no status heaven. There is no, I've just got the best life now and I'm the greatest and that's why I'm happy. That's not why people in heaven are happy. And they're way happier than anybody in this world is and they're happier for longer and more deeply. It's because they love helping. Consequently, the nature of each individual's pleasures depends on the nature of that individual's service. And its intensity depends on the intensity of the affection for service. It's all about connecting to service. So loving, and that may sound dry, service. What I'm talking about is, you know the feeling of, oh, I did something good. I helped, or when you start thinking about how someone feels and you're working to get them happiness. That's what, that's what it is, that living thing inside of us. That is the essential component of heavenly happiness. And this is what God is offering. 
for us. This is divine love and wisdom. This is what it means to be in the Lord, since everything that flows into people in heaven from the Lord has to do with service. Everything that God has given us, there's evil and falsity, which is causing all this unrest, but God is giving us service, loving, useful service. It flows from the members into the collective body and from the collective body into the members. We're talking about heaven here. The members in heaven are angels, and the collective body is their community. So it can be for us. So if we focus on useful service, that is trusting. If we were going to use the shield, the shield is trust. You can't just say, I trust you, and then I'm not going to listen to what you have to say. What, what trust is that? If we actually live our life based on it, that's when it becomes rooted to the point where when these worries come in, they run into that shield. So rather than thinking about how things, how thing, are things going to turn out for me and am I going to get exactly what I want or be better in this way, trusting, say that God is going to take care of me and I know that what will make me happy is loving, helping others. That is going to lead me into this heaven state and the best possible outcome for my life. That, even though we discovered Teflon is, is bad for us and causes all kinds of body problems, it's a great metaphor. That's Teflon. When you have that on, that trust, evil and falsity just whisk right off. So there's a nuance to this whole trust and usefulness thing. I found for myself, when applying these ideas in my life, that putting my trust in the Lord and focusing on useful service ends up more often than not looking like surrender. So oftentimes, the thing we're doing is surrendering all the head talk about should I do this or should I do that, and simply doing the next right thing. The truth is, when we as of ourselves decide to focus on useful service, our ego will have lots of ideas about what being useful looks like. And I know for myself that that ends up painting an unachievable picture of perfection, which feeds into an endless striving to do more and more in hopes that it will ever be enough. Practicing surrendering the outcome and accepting life just as it is helps me to then let God fill in the details of what exactly the form of my useful service ends up taking on any given day. And there are infinite forms of what it means to be useful. Changing what's at the core. So we have these two poles here, right? From the beginning, the love of self-image and the love of useful service. But it seems like, think about life, how, how living and how varied and how complex life is and the way that we care about all these things. It seems like it's just way too simplistic and religious to boil down all these complexities into just those two. But this is where Swedenborg's concept of the dominant love comes into play. So, yeah, we love a lot of things, but we have something that drives us overall. And what we love over everything colors how we approach all these other things in our lives. So if we can switch our dominant love, the thing we would, if our whole life was on fire, this is the thing we would grab and run with. If, it if, it, if that becomes loving, useful service, loving the impact we can have on other members of the human race, then let's walk through this description of what life can be if we do that. This is a, a passage Swedenborg had based on the story in Exodus of the bread from heaven coming down. And that that's a picture of a correspondential picture of how our lives could be if, if we live and believe this. First, a little disclaimer. This is Secrets of Heaven 8478. Anyone who examines the question without looking beyond the literal meaning is apt to believe we must reject all care for the morrow and wait for life's necessities to come from heaven one day at a time. So, okay, I just won't do no 401k, nothing like that. However, 
People who look deeper than the letter, as those who consider the inner meaning do, are capable of seeing that what care for the morrow really means. It does not mean taking the trouble to acquire food and clothing or resources for the future, because providing for ourselves and our family is not out of line. Okay, so we've got this spiritual teaching. It's not saying, uh, you know, how they didn't keep the bread in the manna story, the bread would go bad the next day. So you shouldn't worry about you. If you have a pantry full of food, you're out of sync with God. That's not what it's about. Caring for the physiological and safety needs can be in there, but it is a warning about being focused away from God and on our self-image instead. Here's a really cool description of what these two different lives are like. No, the people with care for the morrow are, are those who chafe under their lot rely on themselves rather than the deity, and focus solely on worldly and earthly rather than heavenly concerns. So as I'm working to do this stuff, I'm not happy with the results. Anxiety about the future wholly consumes them, as does the lust to own everything and dominate everyone. A lust that burns and grows bit by bit until it exceeds all bounds. Which he's just saying, the little bits of that that we have in us will just multiply if you keep feeding them. You get, the more you get power and money, if that's all you care about, the worse and worse. You absolute power corrupts absolutely. They grieve if they do not achieve their desires and become frantic when deprived of them. So this is very possessive behavior. There is no comfort for the lost because they are then furious with a deity, reject him, discard all belief in him, and call curses down on themselves. This is what people with care for the morrow are like. And that sounds dramatic, but I am totally like that. Just yet, I think it was yesterday, I was like carrying my laptop out the door to go like work outside, and I had a cup of water, and I spilled a bit of it on my pocket. And I was like, oh, is my phone in there? My first thought was like, God, how could you? What are you even doing in my life? That, that's just like, I have this stuff that I want, and if you're not giving me what I want, that's a silly example, but it scales out to, I, I wanted this status thing, I wanted things to go this certain way. That's, I mean, to me, that is spot on, for myself anyway. You can see if you've got any of that in you as well. But what would it look like if we weren't like that? What does our existence of navigating the everyday hurdles of life look like when we have love of usefulness and the heaven that that brings coloring what we see. So here we get the other side of it. The case is totally different with people who rely on the deity. Although they have care for the morrow, we do care about getting food and things, they do not have it because they do not contemplate the future with anxiety, let alone distress. They are serene whether they achieve their desires or not. So you still want things, but you're not, it's not, I've got to get it or it's all or nothing. And when deprived of them, they do not grieve. They are content with their lot. If they grow rich, they do not set their heart on wealth. If they rise to high position, they do not regard themselves as more important than others. So you're not having to divest yourself, but it's about how you think of yourself in relation to others. If they become poor, they're not downcast. If their status is lowly, they are not depressed. They know that people who trust in the deity are always moving forward to a state of eternal happiness. And that no matter what happens to them in the temporal world, this one we're living in, it still contributes to that state. So take that to your voices of anxiety. If we can cultivate that belief, which comes from loving this useful service, think of what that does to the dynamic when your anxieties come up and try to get you to worry about all that stuff. And you say, no, no matter what happens, God is bringing me toward 
eternal happiness in this situation is going to contribute to that in the end. How do you get to a state like that? You love useful service. That is the key because that is like a magnet that draws this way of being to it. The story of the children of Israel and a particular detail about their relationship to food is actually kind of interesting. I don't know if you're familiar with the story, but when they were slaves in Egypt, their food was provided, and according to their recollection later, it was, it was good. It was good food. Egypt was a very rich and well-watered land, and then they left that slavery behind and all the other awful aspects of that slavery and went out and were wandering for 40 years in the wilderness. And according to the Bible account, there were hundreds and hundreds of thousands of them, if not millions. So all these people are moving through the desert and there's not enough water and there's not enough food and it's got to be a daily concern. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? So at some point, God promises them this bread from heaven that's called manna. And it would come every day. It was no good if you tried to keep it for the next day. So they, it was that day. It was the daily bread, literally. And so over time, they had to just learn to trust that that bread was going to come tomorrow the same way it did today. And it was also difficult for them to learn to trust that that was the right food. They said it tasted bland to them and and they even sometimes got sick of it. They, they wanted to eat something else. It was a difficult thing to learn to trust that that was the right food. So the point of this show is hopefully to give you something that you can take with you and pull out of your pocket when things are getting rough. And as I was going through the material for this show, as we were making it, um, I had just these two little experiences with personal application uh, where you take a concept and then kind of go to the next step. Like, what do you do when your mind tries to wrestle these concepts out of your hand? So there's certain bits of anxiety that I think we can drill down into and particularly see how we connect this love of self-image with anxiety, even when it doesn't seem connected. So here's one about reputation. So I was having this thought, okay, so you're saying in this show, Curtis, you know, you want to be useful, that, that God is saying that's the life that you go live, and if you live that life, then you'll be happy and protected and sheltered. But what if I go try to do something useful, but then somebody critiques my performance and, and says I'm, I didn't even do it that well? Well, then I might be trying to be useful, but then I'm seen as less. But I realized that I abandoned the principle halfway through because if you go back to the primary thing, the most important thing being I want to be useful, then to your fear that says, well, what if you go try to do something useful and someone says you're no good at it, I'm not primarily concerned as to whether people say I'm good at it or not. I'm concerned with whether good is being accomplished. And when you're in that mindset, you're not fragile because it's like, oh, if I, if I have things to learn there, I'll go learn them. And it just is this fascinating, like, oh no, it's always kind of flipping back. It, you, you're kind of like ping-ponging, you know, with your thoughts, which will say, well, what if this happens? Well, I don't care because that, I just want to be useful. But what if when you're useful this happens? I don't care. I just want to be useful. I hope that God will make me a useful tool to, to accomplish his, whatever he's trying to do. And then thinking about when you're in a problematic situation. So this is the second one. I remember feeling like I was involved in one and you can be upset and frightened if, if you've got like people that you feel like you're at odds with and why am I wrapped up in this situation? 
but to ask instead the question, is it useful for me to be involved in this situation? Could some good come out of it? Then I just see myself as, oh, I'm an agent of this, this bigger force for good. And like, I just, you feel kind of God existing behind you, right? Because I'm not picturing myself and the feelings of the situation, but I'm picturing this grand push across the whole human race to do good things, to, to right wrongs and, and all that. So keeping that in mind, to me, just in the moment makes the situation less frightening because you realize, okay, we're going to go try to, it's like you're part of a company that has a huge budget and we're going to go do this endeavor. And even if that doesn't pan out, we're going to do the next thing. That is the truth. That's what we are really part of. That is what God has in store for us. And, and we are absolutely, we have a, we're hired there. We have a full benefit package. That is what the future really is. So don't let your mind uh, push you around. And I would just close by saying that everything on this channel that we're putting out, we're putting out because it's trying to move us along this journey. So I think you can build up this framework of the world as Swedenborg describes it. That really can be this amazing antidote to your fears as they come in. It allows us to take that trust in God and make it complex and make it dynamic and, and expand its realness to us. So that's why we do what we do. And, and I hope that, um, it's doing something good for you. Off the Left Eye is Curtis Childs, director, producer, and host. Karen Childs, writer, community manager, and host. Chelsea Odner, writer, production manager, and host. And Jonathan Rose, host and series editor of the NCE. Shada Sullivan is the voice you love in our narrations. Stuart Farmer is our technical director. Matthew Childs, our video art director. Our motion designers are Meng Jong and Jesse Johnson. Reed McArdle made our music. Devin Osblond is our production intern. Cara Dom is our Latin consultant extraordinaire. And Chris Dunn is our digital marketing magician. And you are our much-loved listener. And now you can journey with us all week. Every Monday's Swedenborg and Life episode, including this one, has a week's worth of content lined up to support you in your exploration of these life-changing ideas. All video content premieres at noon Pacific time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time and 7 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time on the Off the Left Eye YouTube, Facebook, and Simplecast channels. On Tuesdays, find us on social media or go to offtheleftye.com to get custom downloadable art paired with the week's topic to ground you through the week. On Wednesdays, join us to dig a little deeper into the week's topic with news from heaven. On Thursdays, we want to hear from you. We'll be sharing a new reflection question weekly on our community tab and social media channels. Then join us for Swedenborg Live on Fridays for our panel Q&A show. And listen every Sunday to the Inside Off the Left Eye podcast to always know what we're up to and what you can look forward to. If you want to help sustain Off the Left Eye's operations, consider becoming a monthly donor today. And right now, we have a matching gift challenge from a very generous donor couple where dollar for dollar up to $10,000 will be matched when you make a new or increased monthly donation. You can provide a direct gift or restrict it to our new Off the Left Eye endowment fund. Giving to the Endowment Fund is a great way to guarantee that your gifts live on to help off the left eye forever. Go to otle.cosvox.com to become part of our essential community of donors. From all of us here at Off the Left Eye, we thank you.